Hello, Agnes. Hi, Robin. Hi, Will. Hi, Agnes. Hi, we Robin. are joined again by Will. I'm back. And he's going to tell us what we're going to talk about. Yes. Uh, kept, we don't know. <laughs> kept it, um, uh, well, a surprise sort of. I, I gave you a little hint a couple of days ago. Um, it's a topic, I, again, I'm curious about it. I, I think I'm probably quite confused about it. Um, but this is something that there's a lot of discourse and there has been for uh, many millennia on this very topic. And it's kind of like, why is truth good? Why is truth good? Or um, in parallel, although it's not the exact opposite of this question, why is fiction bad? And um, these kind of explorations. So I'm the thing about truth is I'm just worried that a lot of defences for why truth is good rely upon the definition of truth in that um, truth represents reality. Truth is linked to what is actually the case rather than hypothetically, so on and so forth. I, um, but you, I, I, I'm reluctant to use those as reasons why truth is good. Uh, it seems like a, like maybe like a tautology, some kind of argument that's looping back on itself. It's def it's defined itself and then saying, and then someone else is saying it's good because truth is defined as truth. So can I give you one standard philosophical reply? I'm not saying most philosophers would give this, but some would, that I don't find particularly satisfying, but mm -hmm. it's a place to start. Um, you might think, like, suppose we're playing Monopoly. Right. And you're like, well, why are you trying to get so many houses and why are you trying in hotels and things? And like, why are you doing that? And you're just like, well, that's what Monopoly is. Right. Um, part of what it is to play Monopoly is to aim at certain things. Otherwise, you're not playing Monopoly or like you're playing baseball. Why are you trying to get a home run or whatever? Right. There are certain goals that are internal to certain activities. Given that you're playing those activities, you're going for those goals. So you might think believing ha is like that. It's like Monopoly or baseball in that it has a kind of constitutive aim that part of what it is to be in the believing game is to be aiming at the truth. And we're all, we all are in the believing game. We all, in fact, do. Not all the time. We do all other kinds of stuff besides believing, right? We have desires. We form hypotheses. We entertain conjectures. We do all sorts of things that aren't believing. But insofar as we do play the believing game, it's just written into that game that what you're aiming at is the truth. So I, I would invoke, at least for a reference, as, as Agnes did, the usual decision theory rationale. So uh, the usual decision theory says you have to make a bunch of choices uh, and you have preferences over those choices. And if your choices meet some certain axioms, uh, of certain kind of consistency that most people think are reasonable axioms, at least to meet ideally, then you can be described by a set of utility functions and a set of beliefs, um, which are consistent with these axioms, and that uh, these beliefs are of the sort of beliefs about truth, or at least they have that same formal structure. And within that formal structure, if you were to get more information that narrowed your belief distribution, then you would make better decisions according to standard decision theory. So standard decision theory says that, you know, there's a set of possible worlds. You don't know which one you're in. You want to make the decisions that match the worlds you're in and the outcomes you want. The way you do that is you have a set of preferences and you have a set of beliefs. And the beliefs are literally just about which 
possible world is the actual world. And so the, the claim there is knowing the truth or having more accurate beliefs literally is the same as knowing better which of the many possible worlds is the actual world. And if you didn't care which of the many possible worlds was the actual world, then the truth wouldn't be very useful. <laughs> yeah. I, okay. So there's kind of two uh, two explanations there. One's Robin's one and then one's Agnes's one. Um, I'll d reply to the latter first. So it kind of seems that the word that we're, we're skirting around here is reliability. So truth is reliable. But I also don't, I'm not fully convinced that that isn't also the definition of truth, is that truth is reliable. And so to say truth's good because it is reliable, I'm I'm just, for some reason I've got uh, the idea that this is a circular argument is really toxic to me and I'm kind of allergic to it. So I, anything that seems like it's well, looping back on itself. But do you, do you reject or accept the concept of many possible worlds and one actual world? That is, if you accept that, then I've almost got you there, according to the standard story, by saying, well, truth is just, which is the actual world. And you could be wrong by thinking a different sure. world is the actual world compared to the one that is the actual world. Okay, yeah. So so if we look at this world level uh, view, we've got, as you say, the actual world, and then you've got many uh, theoretical worlds, which uh, you may also describe as imaginary worlds. Um and I subscribe to that. I think there is one, I mean, leaving apart uh, my, you know, Everettian interpretation of quantum mechanics thoughts. Um, I, I subscribe to that. Um, now, the question is, why should we live in the actual world? As opposed to a world, there's there's several different gradients we could go down. Right. We could go we could go down one which is uh, it, it's, we could find an explanation for the way things are, which isn't tr true, quote unquote, uh, but is is true is true in that we have a definition for for it and the definition seems to correspond so i'll give you an example right um before we knew about certain cosmological things such as uh, heliocentrism or before we uh, had kind of um lost our collective faith in a higher being we had narratives and stories which we thought were the actual world um, and we survived and lived quite happily in that in those imaginary worlds. And that's not to say that we found the actual world now somehow, because we still are very unsure about lots of things. But um, it seems that there's this loyalty to pursuing what is the actual world against what is an imaginary world, such as um, a world based off of um, a religious text that. It's we just a society's chosen to go that direction. I'm I'm curious why. So I mean, it seems to me that in Robin's picture, he afforded the possibility of separating um, the question of what is the actual world going to look like, which world are we in, and the question of what will guide our decisions, right? And so when you say I'm skeptical that we've just defined truth in a certain way, I'm actually not sure which of the two you're worried about conflating truth with. But certainly there's space here for the thought that you could learn, um, 
you could get more information about which world you live in and that could have no impact on your decisions, right? So yeah. there could just be facts like, you know, I don't know, counterfactual historians or something, right? Like they're trying to look at, you know, they're, they're interested in certain weird sorts of truths. I mean, it's a little hard to to, to specify those truths in terms of possible world theories. Or, alternative kind of, facts. Yeah, alternative <laughs> facts, right? But the point is, it seems like the concept of truth can still apply there. So, so I guess like it seems to me that what Robin is saying is that a subset of truths can be useful to us. Right. And so he's not conflating truth and usefulness. Right. Um, uh, and in fact, he would be saying not all truth, like not all truths can have any impact on what decisions you make. Right. Only some of them do. And we invest energy in finding those ones typically. Um, but so is your worry um, that even the sort of more minimal claim of truth is. Um, where truth is knowing which world you live in, regardless of whether that's going to be useful to you or not, that even that, uh, that may not be capturing the concept of the truth? Or is it that, um, you know, you want to separate out the idea of truth and what's useful in making decisions? Um, I think it's more the second one. I'm, I'm curious. Um, I, I should also say, like, I'm someone who is quite scientifically minded, so obviously I care what is true, because I'm interested in doing analysis on the world, um, and I find it useful in that sense. Um, the way this started was this point of, like, circularity, or at least where I, I, I could sniff some circularity. Um, but maybe that's, maybe that's an illusion in and of itself. Right, because I, I guess if you pick the second one, that's what I thought you were picking, then yeah. I really think there isn't circularity. There that isn't. is, there are two different concepts that he's bringing in. One is which world is the actual world, and yep. the other is um, how what bearing does it have on our decisions, right? And the first is the question of truth, and the second is the question of, like, you know, how do we live well or something. And Robin is saying that decision theory says... That this thing over here, which is defined independently of whether or not we make any use of it, mm-hmm. not not circularly, right? That thing actually it does is going to help us typically, sometimes, so, some subset of those things will help us make decisions. So I, I think it might help to try to paint the picture of the non-truth oriented people in as vivid a way as possible. Because I think if you look at that picture in enough detail, you will see a version of truth there too. So let's imagine a religious community. And uh, we're setting aside all the practical ways they farm and build houses and things like that. Or just focusing on the topics where they talk about their religion. And uh, there's a set of priests and other people in this religion. And they are making claims or they're discussing various claims about the holy scriptures and the various events that happen and what their gods might approve. And in that world, they are socially coordinating so that, um, for example, when the priest makes a statement about a certain topic they just make sure they never disagree with that in the future so you know it's a socially constructed process by which they chose that but then they're just going to stick with it and so over time they accumulate these things they've all decided to stick to and you as a member of the religion want to do that too you want to go along with that but along the way it's somewhat useful you to maybe to guess what the next version of that will be and uh, because you might you have to pick sides in these various political battles and you want to pick the side that's going to be aligned with the one that's going to be officially declared instead of the one that won't be and we we could say that 
is this the opposite of a truth-oriented world because it's all focused on the social community and what they arbitrarily pick, but nevertheless, you as a member of that community have this decision theory task, which is what will they actually pick? And for you, that is the actual world compared to the possible worlds. And you're trying to guess where will the community go in terms of making one choice or another. Mm. And uh, so you use decision theory in the same way you might just do it anywhere else. You're saying, I'm trying to predict what this will be. I'm using my various clues to guess that. The truth is what they will pick. And uh, that's the truth that's relevant here. So this is my attempt at a construction of saying, try to imagine the world that's the least truth-oriented. And there's a kind of truth that matters there too. Yeah, even even within a world of fictions, you might still be wanting to operate in a way which is reliable, predictable, right? Which is kind of by definition true to the story. Exactly. Yes. Then you might ask, well, like, which kinds of constructed truths should we embrace versus non-constructed truths? So I think. Often, so there's there's this whole field of philosophy of science and sociology of science, and a lot of that field has for a long time been focused on the idea of the social construction of science. And you know the key claim that many people disputed or that bothered them was the idea that the social truths that science produces were socially constructed. They were the results of some negotiation, political process rather than an objective nature. But for our purposes here, it's still just as much a truth. Yeah. Okay, and that extends even even to how we live our lives today, right now. Right. Because the things which we take for granted as being true might not actually be that way, um, but we can still act in a way which seems to conform with decision theory because we're we're just using what we um, know will continue. Is that is that the process there? Is it what we know will continue, or what? A socially constructed truth yeah. is still a truth. Sure. Would be the key point. Yeah. No, it, it's still a truth. That is, like, in the United States, we all drive on the right side of the road, right? That's socially constructed. In another possible universe, it could have been the left. The, the physics of the universe didn't declare that. We socially chose that. But it's still the truth that in the United States, you drive on the right side of the road. So there's different things you might mean by socially constructed, but yeah. Like, so, so, some one, one thing you might mean is, like, it's a kind of a fiction, but another thing you might mean is it's a reality that's the product of decisions. And the question is, is there a difference between those two concepts? What is an example of a socially constructed truth that isn't actually a truth with respect to some social world? Yeah, this is something you've been like asking about a lot, I guess. Because I was like, I remember you were asking about the isosceles triangle. Is that a social construct? Yes. (laughs) And Ah. and more poles. Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm inclined to think that Yes, that the the really pure example of things that are socially constructed um, are things where in order to, um, or so to speak, there's no way, no instrument that could apprehend them other than the mind that believes in them. And so the example for me, the purest example in all of my polls, and I was very surprised because this, though this was deemed socially constructed, it was not by, the margin was not as big as some other cases like money or whatever. Uh, it's winning and losing. I think winning and losing is purely socially constructed. That is, it, there's no reality that that corresponds to. So there are other realities that sometimes track, like sometimes the winner gets a gold medal, right? And so then you could, your your instrument could pick up someone's having a gold medal, right? But your instrument doesn't pick up that that's winner, right? So there's a, there's a, there's a symbolic assignation mm. of something as winning, or it could be that death is losing, 
But in a social world where people are trying to win and not lose and trying to calculate which moves will help them win the game, there we can use expected utility theory to describe that situation. And the true state is the state where the person you thought win wins. And that is truth. You might say it's disconnected from other truths or arbitrarily constructed truth, but it's a truth. Who won the game? Can I can I give you a thought experiment that I just came up with? So suppose we had Robin Hanson's utility function, right? And someone knows it. And so they know all of the things that you're trying to bring about, right, in your life. And obviously, your own learning of truths, ser- on your view, it serves this utility function. Right. Um, and suppose they were to say to you, and you believe them, okay, that, like, here's a bunch of falsehoods, which if you were to delude yourself into coming to believe them, overall, yes. you're going to have more utility, given okay. your utility function. Right. Here's a pill. You can take this pill. Right. If you take this pill, you'll, you'll get to believe a bunch of falsehoods. And that will overall satisfy your desires better. Do you take the pill? Uh, if I'm completely convinced that it will achieve my purposes, then I have to want to do it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting how you phrase that, right? Like well, I mean, there's no, like there's, there's no escape there, right? But, but of course, I, I have to wonder whether I have to want, but, but the by assumption, you said it will give me all the things I want, right? If that's true, how else could I want to do, right? I, I might think it's not possible that this thing will give me everything I want. For example, I might want to like be in control of what I do and understand it. That might be part of the things I want. Uh, but if you tell me, yes, that's a negative, but it's outweighed by other positives, you don't know exactly how, but just trust us, it really is, then then I kind of have to believe that, right? Okay, what about you, Will? Do you take the pill that you're going to believe like a lot of falsehoods? It's a lot, but overall, your your desires are better satisfied. This is tricky because I care a lot about things that are true, but I have to question why. And it may just be because I have, a, like Robin, a utility function that just wants to operate rationally, quote, uh, like continue life in a way which is just going to be in accordance with what will give me the best life. Um, but th- if I want the best life and does, uh, I need to accept falsehoods to get there, then I would do that. Um, I'm sure this is like a Kafka story or something. I mean, this this is a point just to summarize what should be the obvious extension to the initial theory I described. So I described the standard expected utility framework, yeah. right? And in that framework, the truth is this hidden instrumental thing that you're privately using to calculate what to do. But actually in our social world, we have various truths that we agree on or fight out or assent to. And that's part of the object of our world in terms of what we want. It's not just a hidden set of tools we use to achieve other things. They are central objects of our many games that we fight over. So playing that other role could then give more room for you to want to believe the non-truth according to that (laughs) story, because it could help you win these games where the truth is part of the game. I think the thing is that in life, there are like actually a lot of these. There are a lot of these non-truths that will help you get ahead in the world Mm, and achieve other things you might want. And I see you, Robin, as somebody who has systematically avoided them. Yeah, this is what I was about to say, which is like the the reason um, Robin was kind of cringing at that question, maybe. But like just as as a general part of his way of thinking is, is it is constrained by what is truth which is I, I guess i'm kind of surprised that you you you're placing quite a lot of um uh priority on this uh, social 
uh, film over the top of truth? Um, so a simple way to think about living your life is that you are uh, a creature <laughs> uh, that's part of a species and you aren't that different from all the other members of your species and you evolved over this long time and evolution puts you in this game you're playing and it gave you various strategies and habits and uh, you uh, are aware that some of those strategies and habits have you not being fully honest or aware about various truths around you. I think that's one of the things you can kind of figure out about how you are and how you were made in the world. So the question is, then, um, when you start to see a way in which your you know, inherited programming is leading you to believe false things or to embrace false things, how resistant should you be to that? Yeah. And you might say, well, evolution like produced these habits that you have for the purpose of winning the usual games, which is your best guess of what you want. And so you should go along with whatever habits evolution is suggesting for you to believe the truth when it suggests you do that and to hide from it when it suggests otherwise. Um, that would be the average. Exactly. So the, the question then is, how good a guide to what you want right now in the world you're actually in is the evolved habits that your ancestors have bequeathed to you that were pretty good in a different ancient world for some sort of an average person in that world. Mm -hmm. And so one thing I could say is, if I specialize in trying to figure out complicated, detailed truths in particular areas of the world wherein people are quite inclined to mislead themselves, then I have assigned myself a task that includes resisting these pressures. That's the job I picked. Um, that's not necessarily a guide for everybody else. Uh, they didn't pick this job. They aren't necessarily in the situation. It is going to have to be a guide for everybody to read your book. It would also be an issue for anybody who takes as input the outputs output. of what I produce. Yes. Uh, so uh, other people will have to ask to what extent do they want to specialize in areas of thinking and uh, ideas wherein there will be a lot of temptations, evolved, inherited temptations to believe something other than what's true. And uh, how comfortable are they with embracing that as their goal and agenda here, realizing that there's substantial chances that that will come at costs that, at least from evolution's point of view, evolution guessed that wasn't a good idea. And you're going contrary to its guess. Yeah, so I, I think the angle of um, evolution here is interesting. Kind of, we talked a lot about evolution last podcast, but um, I asked this, I asked my friends this question. Um, that's um, this question about truth, whether or not truth is something that um, we can um, we can appreciate without defining itself. And um, he, he said that truth helps you not die. Um, truth is something that has in a sense survived through evolution because um it because it because of the fact that it's linked to reality it gives you the best um tool for working out how to stay alive and thrive right well say you know your some parts of your mind using this truth orientation would realize that launching yourself into battle at the head of the attack force might lead you to die yeah but other parts of your mind realize that 
declaring to your federal compatriots that that is exactly what you would do because you feel so tied and allied to your group might also be exactly a winning strategy, at least among those people making that declaration, quite, quite, quite against this other truth you might know, right? That is, evolution could have told you that there are some social truths that are especially important to assent to that are in some sense in conflict with these other more basic physical truths. Okay. Oh, I'm not sure I understood that entirely then. So uh, in your religion and, and social group, right, yeah. we're thinking about attacking those people or they're all attacking us and we're saying, you know, will, will you run to the front and fight? Or will you run away and hide? And you're saying, I will run to the front and fight. And I expect every good person to do that. And I feel really determined to do that. Mm-hmm. And evolution might have told you exactly to say that sort of thing. And to believe it sincerely, mm-hmm. at least until the moment you get near the front of the battle, which case it will trigger other instincts. <laughs> and that's the truth that evolution could have selected you to believe and say at that moment. Whereas from a distance analyzing the situation, you might realize you could get killed running to the front of the battle. I see. It's kind of like evolution's made you believe. You could find an example where evolution's made you believe something that might not be actually true. We were going to the not getting you killed part, right? Yeah. There are times when evolution entices you to pretend to not believe you will be killed in situations where it does look like you would get killed exactly in order to win other social games. <laughs> Why wouldn't it just have you believe, like, yes, I might get killed, but it's worth it? Wouldn't that be the better belief? Um, it might find it hard <laughs> to move you that way, right? It's constructing you. Right. So why didn't it construct you? Is, is it because it doesn't have groupthink? Isn't, isn't that the thing here? It doesn't have group, uh, a type of thinking where it, it uh, this idea that evolution is this... this Evolution is kind of an abstraction of what a gene individually wants to do. Um, and within your body, it wants to stay alive or it wants to pass on to a, a, a next um, descendant. So to die um, is counterproductive to that aim. Right. But risking death might be worth it because um, you have a chance to pass on your genes to the more upper class members. of your So group. from the point of view of decision theory, it's completely accurate to say that if you want to change an agent who has beliefs and preferences in order to get them to take other actions, it's sufficient to just change the preferences. You don't necessarily need to change their beliefs. Uh, So more plausibly, your mind is just this huge complicated amalgam of various processes with all sorts of complexities that evolution found it hard to manage. (laughs) And it's taking some sort of opportunistic, easy way to get you to do what it needs you to do and the easy way will be to play with both beliefs and preferences even though in principle it would only need to change preferences it would be enough to just make you determined to go to the front of the battle even if you're likely to die yep but there's these other processes inside you that they hear about i'm gonna die and you know it freaks them out and they 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 start overruling other parts of your mind and like turning off turning off things and, and evolution didn't know how to deal with that and it Thought it was easier just to tell you, oh, you won't die. Oh, okay. I mean, but that to me that's surprising because, like, you know, suppose there's something I don't particularly want to do, right? Um, so like it's hot in this room, so I don't particularly want to like go outside and run around right now, right? 
But like, if you made it worth my while, I could develop a preference for that. Mm -hmm. Okay, give me enough money or whatever. But now, suppose you're like, look, I'm going to make it worth your while. I want you to believe that the sky outside is red, and you just keep adding more money into the equation. And I'm just like, I'm sorry, it's not doing it for me. I just don't think it's red. And so it seems like the levers, like the preference lever, is just more movable than the cognitive lever of just getting me to believe false stuff. So we did this episode previously on rot. Yeah. And I think rot is a concept that is hard to bring into mind for people who don't have a lot of experience with complicated systems. So I think anybody who's inherited, say, a large complicated software system or even rule system for a company, mm. um, and then tasked with making some change, <laughs> is very familiar with the concept that even though in principle there would be changes only in one section that could produce any outcome, as a matter of fact, you'll be searching for easy wins that allow you to think, make minimal changes to do whatever you want. And so most people in large bureaucratic or software systems are looking for these things called hacks. Mm. <laughs> a hack is exactly not a general elegant solution, but just a opportunistic small local solution that will locally get you what you want, but in general, you know, not get you get it in general or an elegant way that'll make it easier to, to make more changes. So your mind is hacked. Uh, your mind is a whole collection of hacks. Evolution hacked your mind mm. because it really couldn't have a large integrated abstract perspective. It could just at each point, you know, make one win and another lose in order to move your ancestors toward what it wanted. Can I ask you a question, Will, about this question? Yeah. About like what's good about truth? Like, so as I see it, human beings have two fundamental forms of motivation. One of them is um, to believe what's true, and the other is to pursue what's good. And Robin is inclined to do a, like a translation thing. Well, the reason we want to be, believe what's true is in order to pursue what's good. I, I'm not sure about that. That is, a, I think we have a pretty strong, robust, just independent thing where we want to believe what's true, even if it's not going to be good, even if it doesn't satisfy our desires or preferences. And I don't think that can be captured as well. We have a preference to that is. Um, uh, uh, I, I think I could reconstruct the examples. Well, you'll believe more truths if you believe this lie. I still don't want to believe why. Okay. So, so, so to my mind, there are these two basic motives and you were worried about one of them, namely the believe what's true one. Mm. And I wonder why you're not worried about the other one. Like that you're like, why aren't you like, well, there's this thing we call good, you know, and we're always like after it. And like, is it just whatever we pursue or is there anything out there? Or like, why, are you also worried about that and about the, it's being in some sense arbitrary or are you only worried about truth? I think I probably am worried about that. Um, uh, I, but I also recognize that like I have very limited experience, like really thinking about these things in general. Mm. So um, I, I kind of, I, I'm concerned that, uh, that some things are very tricky to define and um, to, 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 to untangle so that we can be extremely confident that um, appropriating them or trying to make progress towards them is a good idea. Um, so I guess that's kind of the where the tr there's truth questions come out of. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because um from the way you phrased your question to me it made me think that that you wonder whether i'm seriously questioning truth what i'm i'm not 
in that boat. I'm saying, why is it that we like truth? And can we say why without just defining truth? Mm-hmm. I guess that's more my question here. It's, it's not It's not that I'm wondering whether truth is something good in general. It's and By extension, it wouldn't be that I'm worrying whether good is something arbitrary or something that we should go uh, move towards. Uh, it's it's that what is the truth or what is good and just kind of incidentally do we have a way of defining that which isn't uh, uh, looping back on itself maybe this this maybe it helps if we come to this idea of reliability mm-hmm. so this is a word I said earlier mm-hmm. um, and I think this and kind of based off of what Robin was talking about with um, uh, decision theory so it seems that reliability is the core useful um element of truth which is that it can be used in a in a sense um in a predictive modeling sense and oh i'm curious to, to what do you guys think is reliability part of the definition of truth or something that we've taken uh, or, uh that we use truth to to do a reliable process or to act reliably or yeah, as I was saying, is is reliability part of truth itself? So, so quite often we have sets of related concepts that we see as fundamental, and then we're asking which is the fundamental concept of these sets. Yeah, and that's hard to do because they're often like quite strongly correlated, and the deviations are hard to uncover or or measure, and mm-hmm. and we're often stuck in that way. Uh, it's just hard to pick out one. Uh, I was, La Rochefeld has this quote, something like, uh, you can't look directly at the sun or at death. There are just these things, if you try to focus on them very particularly, they're just too much for you. Um, and you sort of take them from a distance. But I, I would, you know, it's a common observation, but I think it's roughly true that uh, we have these sets of related concepts and we have different ways we could summarize them, but they in a, usually in effect produce the same thing. But if you're trying to push on which one is the more fundamental, it's hard to do. So for with respect to truth and prediction or reliability, you know, it is a theorem, I believe, that typically on average, when you are more truthful, you can make more accurate predictions, mm-hmm. right? Then you might say, well, could I flip that around and make predictability the axiom and the other things the result? And that's mm-hmm. just a matter of, well, uh, can you? I mean, it's hard, but maybe it's possible. But uh, but even then, you might say, but, you know, if you just care about predictability, then maybe you say this truth is a concept you don't need because predictability is the concept you really wanted. But can you really disentangle these two? Is What's the point? I mean, well, why bother? <laughs> don't you kind of know that you, you want to predict things and truth helps you to do that? And isn't that good enough? Well, this is leading <laughs> to the question of induction, right? The things which which historically have been true, will they continue to be true? And you can't use the historic um, occurrences of them being of them being true to to help you in the future. So that maybe that's one argument against this um, uh, this rotation from predictability to truth um, is the induction argument from David Hume, um, precisely for that reason. You're going to have to make an assumption like that anyway to use truth in some other way. You're not going to escape from making an induction assumption. Uh, Maybe you should just give in and realize you're going to have to make an assumption like that. Agreed. 
Um, no, I mean, you could just refrain. You could just say, well, look, there are ideas and there are impressions. And the impressions we have just direct awareness of. And causation is an example of relation of ideas. Um, uh, and uh, those are things we can't know, I should say. That would be Hume's. I mean, sorry, Hume doesn't actually take the skeptical route. He thinks he has some way around it, but people are more impressed by Hume's problem than by his solution. He did, Hume thinks that habit has a kind of legitimacy. So the fact that we just keep doing it that way, mm. like. Yeah, did um, you say something like, let's favor consistency? Yeah, like that there's no, the, the, the idea of necessary connection, he thinks, is an illusion. Yeah. The idea of necessity or the idea that there are forces and stuff going from one thing to the other. But nonetheless, he thinks you can kind of just go back to the habit you had before and just don't think too hard about the causal forces. Um, but I, I wanted to raise something that is always, I'm not sure this is going to be directly relevant, but it, it's it's something that has always struck me as a really interesting asymmetry between our pursuit of truth and our pursuit of goodness. And it's this, whenever you're pursuing goodness, whenever you're trying to achieve the good, you're trying to do some good, Right. There's something that you see as being good and you're trying to bring that about. So if like you're hungry or right? so you're, you're in some goodness oriented process, then you're not just trying to achieve the good in the abstract. I mean, there is some good, right? But, um, and, and so you're, you're committal. You could be wrong, right? But you're committal. Insofar as you're pursuing the good, you're, 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 you're committed with respect to the goodness of something that you are trying to bring about. And truth doesn't work like that. And that's so interesting. Right. So suppose you're trying to figure out whether P, right? You're not trying to make it be the case that P or trying to make it be the case that not P. You want to know which, whichever the right one is, is the one you want to believe, right? But with respect to the good, that's actually not the way it goes. You actually start with some like, no, this is what I want to bring about. And you could later turn out to be deceived or whatever, right? But so I think this is part of what makes orientation to the truth just a little bit puzzling is this kind of openness where I'm like, I just want to know which way it is, whichever way it is, which if, you know, I want to believe P, conditional on P's being the case, I want to believe P, right? But conditional on not P's being the case, I want to believe not P. And someone's like, which one do you want to believe? And it's like, well, whichever one is true, right? Mm. So there's this a really interesting kind of opacity. And it's like, if someone's like, well, conditional on my being hungry, I want food, but conditional on my being not hungry, I don't want food. It's like, okay, which one are you? And you can answer, right? You're like, yeah, I'm hungry. And so, right, I'm not unsure which of those two ways I'm going. And so I think at least it's my sort of intuition that some of the reason why people are raise the puzzles that you just raised about like, what, what are we after in wanting truth is that our orientation to the truth is open in this really distinctive way. And so it doesn't look like our other pursuits. So I'd like to sort of mention how truth ends up being political <laughs> uh, in that, uh, in our world at least, it's very common for people to uh, describe the difference between their political group and other people's political groups as that theirs is more truth-oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, they are a part of the reality community, etc., and that the other groups are more delusional or... Um, unwilling to face the truth or, uh, you know, self-deceived. And, you know, in that framing, uh, then people are clearly saying that truth orientation is better. <laughs> Their group is right more because of that. And that's 
Their main explanation for the disagreement between them and the others is that they claim that really deep down the other people know they aren't being so truth-oriented. They really know that they have these other priorities. And that's just this common framing that people use on many different sides to explain differences on fundamental topics and to describe why they are right and the other people are wrong. Um, And some people, like, say, rationalists, uh, for example, as a community we're somewhat aware of, uh, play this game further. They don't just claim that we're right and they're wrong. They try to point to many habits of our community, which they can use to say, see, this shows that we're more truth-oriented. We know Bayes' theorem. We collect statistics. We, you know, have these refutation processes or whatever. And many academic disciplines have done similarly. They, they have some other group that they feel that they're rivalrous with and that they are disagreeing with, and they will point to their methods, statistics, you know, logic, whatever, as the reason why uh, they're right and the others are wrong. And so that's, to me, the context I tend to think of when I hear this discussion about how important is truth. I think almost everyone, when it comes to this us versus them thing, will be leaning and, well, we care a bit more about truth. Mm. Um, even if they might also acknowledge that sometimes we're better off not acknowledging the truth. <laughs> but they want to have that be a human universal, not something that's distinctively more true about their group, because then it makes their group wrong. Yes, yeah, it's common between all the, all the infighting groups that they all profess to care about truth. Right in the abstract, when when it's us versus them, but if you move to when you move aside from the what group are you with context and start to think about say being romantic and how much you believe in your romantic ideals, then people will start to celebrate like being optimistic, yeah, and not necessarily being cynically oriented toward raw facts, but you know then they'll celebrate some other stance toward truth outside of this political rivalry. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting in and of itself. Is I mean, maybe it is romanticism is is one word of describing it, but like it's this kind of um, choosing this kind of misty, rosy view of life right. um, because it's preferable to something that is. I mean, you use the word cynic cynicism. Um, it's it's something about ignorance maybe or something about choosing not to get bogged down in the details has a valuable element to it at least in a romantic uh, romanticist frame of mind yeah when you're thinking about a romantic versus a non-romantic most people find the romantic more interesting and attractive yeah. and friendly um the non-romantic seems dour and and distrustworthy and uh suspicious um in that Romance context, but again, we go to the political context and people flip around and they're, they're definitely on the truth side. Mm. Yeah, I challenge this because, because in a sense, I find what could be sadder than not looking at the truth is, at what the truth is, or not appreciating that um, photosynthesis is what makes plants green and instead having some kind of fantasy about uh, a magical line running through the wand. For example, like a romantic might say, this uh, some beautiful fiction. Well, but we- what could be, like, in a sense, maybe this is kind of... Um, I've, I've, I've swallowed my argument before I'm putting it out into the world, but I'm saying, um, isn't it kind of uh, almost a romantic thing to appreciate the world as it is? Uh, rather than as 
a misty-eyed view would say it is. So uh, we recorded a podcast recently on James criticizing Clifford, where James offers exactly the opposite argument of how you'll need to romantically believe in things to make them happen. I'm so pleased you brought that up, Robin. You really remembered what we talked about. <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 can I give the example that, that James gives? So, so he says sometimes you you have to first believe in a fact before the fact can come. So here's like one example that I liked. You're you're on a um a train, and um some robbers come to rob the train, and James is marveling that like say a band of five or ten robbers can rob a whole giant train with like you know hundreds of people in it maybe. And um, he's like, imagine if just all those people believed, like, we can overcome these robbers, like, that they easily could, right? Mm. Um, if they if they all just had faith, right? Um, uh, and um, and they might say, well, look, there's no evidence that, right? But, like, if they all just were to believe, they would then rise up together and they would overcome the robbers. And James just thinks there's tons of stuff like that in life where the cynical point of view is just equivalent to the point of view of, like, I'm just being scientific and I can tell you that I can't myself, you know, overcome the robbers and I have no reason to believe that everybody else is going to rise up. Right. And so he just thinks like the people who have the, uh, the other example he gives is that, like often when you want to be friends with someone, like in effect, you have to treat them in a friendly way before you like have evidence that they're going to be friends with you. And by sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt and sort of seeing them as your friend, you make them your friend. And if you were going to be, um, sort of, um, you know, ruthlessly truth directed in, in, in one sense, you would never believe and you would be like, oh, I'll wait and see whether he's going to be friendly to me and nobody would ever be your friend. Yeah, isn't it? But isn't it kind of incorporated in the ruthless and truth directed way of thinking that you would default to that behavior because in a cynical way, it's going to succeed? Suppose people can see through you. Yeah. Like, suppose you're not much cleverer than everybody else, yeah. right? which is the average person isn't much cleverer than anybody else. Yeah. Then it may be that if you take that attitude, people will see through you and nobody will be your friend. A third example given was that often someone will woo or seduce someone else via high level of confidence in success of their pursuit, mm -hmm. right? If, if they... Is if say this will work two percent of the time, and they projected their belief of this is this has a two percent chance, but I'm going for it. That wouldn't be very persuasive or attractive to someone being wooed if they believe this has a seventy percent chance of working, working even though it objectively has a two percent chance, and they persistently pursue it as if they had such a seventy percent chance. More more often. <laughs> They can succeed. Yeah, that sounds yeah, that sounds convincing. <laughs> but these are cases then where the world has conspired to make you more successful if you don't believe the truth. And there are also cases where classically one invokes romance, like romance, right? Yeah. When it, people have romantic visions about romance, and it's like. You might think, yeah, you kind of, every date you go on, you kind of have to think, maybe this is going to be the one. If you didn't think that, if you thought, this probably won't work out. If before your marriage ceremony, you're like 50% chance of divorce, <laughs> right? That increases the chance of divorce from higher than, higher than 50%, you might think. And in, say, philosophy of science, people have suggested that most researchers need to have overconfidence in the success of their research program to motivate their pursuing some unusual approach compared to the status quo.
and that science wouldn't work nearly as well if people were not substantially overconfident about their particular research programs. Okay, so these are all like reasons why, in a sense, not believing the truth or not not at least thinking about the truth or focusing on it or making it a key part of your frame of mind ha- helps you to succeed. But this also seems kind of weird as well. Like, isn't this not playing, to go back to Monopoly, this is kind of like not playing Monopoly for the sake of being a better Monopoly player in in a kind of strange way. I'm not sure how it would be, how, how the analogy would uh map directly but so i mean um 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 you know if the monopoly game was supposed to be just analogy the analogy to belief game which is how i was originally setting it up then it would just be you would lose the game on purpose sometimes right which doesn't make any sense if the monopoly game we now change the analogy in its life right well it's clear that like sometimes in monopoly you will sort of like intentionally give up a property right um, or intentionally not buy some, yeah. you know, you might not buy Boardwalk and Park Park Place because you're like, nobody ever lands on them for some reason. And oh, even the, though the rents are those the brown huge, ones? They're the blue ones at the very end. They're oh, like, I see. They have these huge rents, but like somehow the, the, the game is designed that like nobody ever lands on them, right? And so it's <laughs> like you're, you know, like globally you're still trying to make money, but like locally you might lose money, right? Um, because you think overall you're going to make money. And so I actually do think that like Robin's framework, the decision theory framework has an easier way of making sense of these cases Mm. than the one I was suggesting where belief is the truth game. Um, I think the thing my framework has an easier way of making sense of is the fact that, um, in the cases where it's to your advantage to believe something false, you can't actually just get yourself to go ahead and do it. So suppose your point of view is just like, you start out with this point of view. Look, there's like, for each date, there's like a 1% chance this is going anywhere. And someone's like, if you think about it that way, it's never going to work. You have to think this is a 90% chance, you know, with every date. And it's like, it's going to be really hard to get that person to shift over, Mm -hmm. right? And you could give them the whole argument we've just given, and yet it doesn't work, right? You don't wonder why doesn't it work? I mean, this person just wants mm-hmm. it to work out, and you've shown them what, ha- what they have to do in order to make it work out is just to have this wrong credence. Why can't they just adjust in the way that you would adjust with the properties? But as an actual practical matter, many people do successfully grow up in environments where they are trained in habits of dating and professional competition and school such that they assimilate habits that are basically optimistic lies. Yeah. But they never had to explicitly address it and consciously adopt it. And so they can quite successfully be not truth oriented in those strategies. Absolutely. But the question is, why did we have to do that giant rigmarole, right? With respect to preferences, I mean, you can just shift and adjust when you see you have reason to do. Here, what you're saying is, in effect, you have to elaborately construct the environment such that the person winds up believing. No, really, it is a 90% chance this time, you know, and they, they're like insisting that this is the truth, right? That's a distinctive feature of the truth, that it works that way, that you had to do this very expensive process to get them to believe it, which is a process that appeared to make the world like a kind of Truman Show type world that you set up for them, where they're like, they have all the beliefs that will make it work out for them, because you couldn't just get them to just select those beliefs, even though all they want is to be happy. I was kind of interested in something you were talking about earlier as well, I guess, which is this this 
con- this like almost where's the in what direction is the gravitational pull mm-hmm. um so you were talking about um truth having this strange thing where you care not for what what the answer is but you care about the fact it's true as opposed to um other situations such as goodness where you do care what the answer is because the in a sense in a way the quality of its goodness is somehow more closely bonded with the thing itself as opposed to this truth which is a big circle around everything um I, I don't know if I had a, a, a well, line to go on. I mean, your your concept of reliability is then closer to the concept of goodness, right? So, um, yes, reliability is the sort of thing that you know which direction you want it to go. Yeah, and you're happy when it goes there, and that might be a reason to think of reliability as more fundamentally what you want uh, than the truth. The truth you want the truth indirectly because it produces reliability rather than vice versa. Right, but your original worry, you know, when you were like worried about Robin's view was something like, yeah, but why think the truth is just reliable? Like, is that somehow circular? Is there something mm-hmm. getting, like, something going amiss there? And I guess there is something going amiss. Here's another way to think about it, that philosophers sometimes like to think about it. Um, we, we have two basic um, kind of mental states, mental orientations to the world. Um, and they are the orientation of belief and the orientation of desire. And when I have the orientation of desire, then I have in my head some representation, like say I want a cupcake, right? Mm-hmm. And I like have a cupcake image in my head, right? And then I'm trying to like make that real. Like maybe I go to the cupcake store, maybe I bake a cupcake, right? So I try to make the world, the world is sort of soft and malleable. And I try to mold it so that it has the shape of my mind. Yeah, That's how desire works. That's how the pursuit of the good works. Belief goes the other way, right? It's that say I want to know, like, is there a cupcake in that store, right? I want to know that. Well, then my mind is like a blank, right? And I want it just to reflect whatever the truth is, right? So first, the world is fixed, right? And then my mind is supposed to mold to whichever way the world happens to be. So sometimes philosophers call that direction of fit, right? Mm -hmm. So the direction of fit of belief is different from desire in that the direction of fit of desire is a world to mind, whereas the direction of fit of belief is mind to world. And that's explained by the observation I made in our podcast that within the standard expected utility framework, uh, preferences are the part about you (laughs) and beliefs are the part about the world. So you're trying to vary the beliefs to match the world, but not vary your preferences to match the world. The preferences are varied to match what you are. I I wanted to observe that um, even though we mostly think we want to acquire more truth. I think I found out in the process of writing Elephant in the Brain that we too easily make that assumption. <laughs> so uh, the Elephant in the Brain is a project whereby we look for the hidden motives in life. And it's easy beforehand to say, yes, I want to know what the hidden motives uh, in life are for myself and other people. Uh, because you presume that I'm a truth-oriented person and I want to know the truth. And a heroic scholar uh, has that as their task, and I am a heroic scholar, of course. (laughs) And then you dig into the hidden motives of human behavior, and you find out what they are, which is a mixture of pretty and ugly various things. And um, you find that maybe you didn't want to know as much as you thought. (laughs) 
you liked the idea of learning the truth that reified your you know sense of glory and on heroics but what the truth is is that you aren't as heroic as you'd like to think and neither is anybody else and they don't want to hear it and they aren't going to reward you for finding out and telling them so much um you made a presumption that you wanted to know the truth, but mm -hmm. I think, in fact, many people find out through their lives things they presume they wanted to know the truth about, and then found out about they didn't actually want to know. The only way to find out is to realize that there it is. You know it, and you're not so happy. Yeah, this is, I mean, sort of linked to what we talked about in the car when, you, when I was saying that I was very loyal to ideas, and you pointed out that this can often mean you're loyal to groups. Um, so in the kind of it's a parallel to what you what you're just saying in that um, you might you may say you're loyal to truth, but in fact you're loyal to something that might be described as uh, your 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 artwork of truth, right. where you accept if you if if truth is like a color palette, and you're making a painting of the real world, you might choose actually I'm not going to have any black in my painting. Um, rejecting certain truths. And you might not think that's who you were ahead of time. Mm, yeah. So one of the most disturbing truths you will find out is how much you actually care about the truth. <laughs> when you go just trying to discover the truth. Robin, you were saying that like politically, everyone likes to paint themselves as being... Or their group the, as, yes. Their group as being on the side of the truth. And... I guess I'm just wondering what, why, I mean, that is, and you have the, you say we have this heroic idea that we want the truth and why, why any of that? I mean, why not have the idea about yourself? Well, I mean, I want the truth and so forth. It's good for my group. Isn't that, wouldn't that show loyalty way better if you're like, I'm willing to lie for my group? Well, I think people have in mind an audience. So an audience is hearing two groups. And one group is saying, we just care about the truth. And another group might be saying, well, we believe what we find comfortable to believe. Mm -hmm. And I think they both kind of believe that the audience won't find that second position as persuasive. <laughs> but why not? I mean, unless people really <laughs> fundamentally care about the truth, which would, that seems circular to well, me. Well, they might care about the truth of which group to join. Right. But like, what you know, if I join this group, it's going to be like, really, we'll be really loyal. We'll always be on the same page and stuff. Why not join that group? I think people often do make that appeal. They just don't make it in the truth terms. Right. Uh, they but make it in an, another more indirect terms. But I think I, that appeal is, in fact, made. I guess I'm just wondering, like, it, it seems to me very striking that we, in politics, universally make this appeal to truth. And it has to then that has to speak to something in the audience and it has to speak to something in the audience about what group to join. For instance, it speaks to something in will, like when the, you know, effective altruists and stuff say, these are our ideas and we care about truth that makes him want to join their group. And he doesn't just want to join because they're very groupy or very joiny or something. <laughs> he wants to join because they appeal to this thing that appealed to him independently of his being in the group. So that's what I believe. I'm also very convinced by Robin's kind of group uh, group level way of thinking um, I was going to say maybe this is on a similar line it's kind of like an answer to your question um, just walking around DC I see loads of signs uh, advertising different candidates for mayor so I was thinking you know how would you make the best candidate mm -hmm. um, or how would you make the best campaign I should say and I think you have to say things which the uh, voter is going to be confident you will actually do so it's kind of like actionability and if you're saying things that aren't true in your campaign, um, 
you know, you everyone's going to be. I, I think there was somebody a couple of years ago who said that everyone was going to get a horse or something <laughs> yeah. like this. A pony? Was it a pony? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Um, but like, let's 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 take that and make it stupid. So if I said I was a candidate running for mayor of DC, I think it's mayor, um, and everyone's going to get um, a, a rainbow-colored narwhal, um, then we then. It it places credibility issues on all not on all of my other things because the actionability of my promise is very low. So in a sense, truth at least when it comes to the um, its utility when getting someone to join a group is important because it's linked to the actionability of what the group is fighting for. I I think often when people are trying to persuade an audience and to take positions that appeal to an audience uh, a big question is what kind of constraints or you know limitations can the audience actually notice yeah. and take into account <laughs> and when the audience can't really notice some of them then the speakers are induced to ignore them as well so uh, imagine you know there's 10 different categories of social spending by a government and uh, you have a limited budget, so you couldn't increase all of them. Mm-hmm. But uh, we, we have a separate topic, debate about each topic. And in each topic, each candidate says that they will increase that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the voters, the readers never notice that they made all these different promises which aren't compatible together. But if they don't bother to notice those inconsistencies, then the incentive is to go one. Because otherwise you'd be, you know, so say I, I'm going to increase the first three, but I can't increase the rest because I ran out of my budget. But now in the rest of those debates, the, the other candidate says, I'm going to increase that. And I say, sorry, I can't. And they sound like a better candidate because look, look at all the things they're going to do. Yeah, this is a problem with the voters not being able to assess the actionability. Right. And, and so I've, I've made this observation that an awful lot of the flaws of our current public debate and political systems, they're often laid at the feet of politicians or various intellectuals, but you could say they really should be laid at the feet of the audience mm. who can't make various subtle distinctions. Like, so for various kind of signaling games, I might complain in academia that people do all these over-the-top efforts to make complicated models or complicated statistical analyses that aren't actually that helpful, but they impress audiences. And if the audience isn't smart enough to notice whether they're actually useful or not, how can you blame these people for doing what the audience is rewarding them for? And so in some sense, we will have a better world when we have better audiences who can better appreciate the pitches being made to them. It's another way in which um, you, you, you kind of don't want to tell the truth. <laughs> when <laughs> your audience can't tell the truth either. <laughs> yes. Maybe there's something paradoxical, though, about the idea that you have to make these really, really complicated models to impress a group of people who aren't smart enough to figure out whether or not the models are useful, but they can follow the models? They can just see that they're complicated. (laughs) They can see that it would be hard to do that. I would find it hard to do that. They can do it. They must be able to do more than I could. But like in philosophy, when people give, you know, they tend to have like complicated papers with complicated arguments, and then people make objections. So they, they have to understand. Presumably when someone comes and gives an econ talk, right. some people make objections, right? So they're like, hey, you made a mistake here. This seems wrong. That seems wrong. And you couldn't do that if you didn't understand. Of, of course. No, but the, the, the question is, if a much simpler model would have done the same purpose, well, they'll still do the complicated model. 
And won't the pe- the audience notice that though? That's the whole point. The audience may not care because the audience may also be mainly interested in showing that they're clever enough to find these objections. And the ultimate audience, who's the consumer of all these things, is just going on the fact that these people have been selected out of this competitive process to be the ones who can make the complicated ones and find the holes in the complicated ones. And so those people have an incentive to play this complicated game. And again, if the audience were smart enough to be able to see, isn't that more complicated than you need? (laughs) Then maybe this process could be deflated, but when the audience doesn't notice that or doesn't bother to ask that, then the game goes on. Okay, so how about this concept of a useful fiction? So I think that's kind of what we've been um, approaching here with this idea of um, cat, uh, debate candidates each promising something which isn't actually actionable, um, at least when viewed as a group. Um, but for them, that's a useful fiction. So how do we, how, you, uh, assuming that there are useful fictions in the universe, um, I'm sure there are. You know, even if it's something simple like uh, a, a, a story about, um, I don't know, a child story that later helps that person become a more um, kind person. Let's say, let's say that was a fiction that was useful, but kind of across the spectrum from child story to um, political BS, we have useful fictions. I'm trying to figure out how they fit into the puzzle piece. Well- I mean, I would suggest the word fiction connotes a much more specific, much more structured thing than merely misleading statements. The world is full of usefully misleading statements, but fiction connotes a very particular subject. Yeah, I I mean misleading statements, something that's that's a falsehood, essentially. Um, I mean, I think that even a statement like fictions are pretty much the only things that are guaranteed to be useful. Right, because somebody had to make them up for some reason, whereas like many facts aren't useful at all. Right, mm. so a fiction is designed for a purpose, and a misleading statement is designed for a purpose. Right, you want to mislead people in some in one way rather than in another way because it's useful. Yeah. So all fictions are going to be useful. I, the question is just to, to whom, <laughs> and are they net useful for everyone? Which maybe that's the interesting question. Yeah, maybe. That's, I think uh, that like I mean, there you know there are definitely some fictions that are net useful to everyone, or like not definitely is too strong, but like, but like plausibly, just the fictions that have withstood the test of time, like Homer's Iliad or the Bible or whatever. Um, like it's likely those are net useful to people given that they have stuck around for so long. Let's just point out that models are false. Uh, that is in almost any area of intellectual inquiry, a common thing to do is to produce models. They are simplifications of reality that can be easily, more easily followed. Their implications can be traced out more easily. And uh, we quite often use models because we can do those things, and we know that models are false. That is, they are oversimplifications. Very nice. Yeah, okay. But then, Like all fictions, they're useful. So maybe the fictions are useful because, like a model, they're correlated with truth. Well, they can be useful for many purposes, sometimes to mislead people, sometimes to help people see the truth. So you could say that a model literally helps people see the truth better. Yeah. 
because otherwise it's just this va- opacity of cloud of un, un, ununderstandable mess, and at least a model shows them some patterns they can make sense of that otherwise they couldn't see. How about for Homer's Iliad and uh, the Bible? Do you think it's because, in a, in a weird way, their model um, that they've survived? Um, I think that. So I have my own theory of fiction of artistic fiction which is that um they're designed to show us the bad side of life so there are you know robin was bringing up the fact that like knowing which world you're in of all the possible worlds can be useful for making decisions but there's actually a lot of stuff you might learn that's not that useful for making decisions like how profoundly are you suffering right now or something what are all the Get get a really fine-grained and detailed understanding of all the ways in which you're unhappy and all the ways in which the world is structured so as to make you miserable. Like, all of that might not be that useful for you in guiding your life, but it's like a bunch of truths, right? You might be interested in those truths. Mm. And I think you're, you systematically turn your attention away from them because they're not useful and they don't give you guidance. And my own view is that the, 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 the blunt instrument view of art, of what art does for us, is just allow us to see that like dark side the dark side of the moon the dark side of human phenomena the bad part that we tend to look away from to whatever extent we can and so you'll just find that when you look at fictions they focus on bad stuff on unhappiness on suffering on betrayal the good stuff tends to be have a you know highlighting or something like it has a role a secondary role relative to the bad stuff and so then which fiction survive is ones that really bring home to you a certain set of evils, right? Now, what are the evils that Homer's Iliad is trying to bring home to you? Um, I think, um, I, I'm not sure if it's going to be the same for every audience, right? Um, but like one is just the problem of having a side, like a military side, right? So the, the Iliad is about this dispute between Agamemnon, the leader of the Greeks, and Achilles, the best fighter, for power, right? And it's like, how does the Greek side hold together if the person who's in charge and the person who's best at killing aren't the same person? And you're always going to get this problem with groups where they, they have trouble cohering. And really, if I think about Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it's a very similar problem. You have this problem of a group, which at first it's just Cain and Abel. I mean, it's just two brothers, but like, which one's going to be in charge, right? You got to get one kill the other. And, you know, what you have is like, you know, if you think of, um, um, you know, um, 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 uh, like Jacob and Esau, right? Mm-hmm. Or you think of Joseph and his brothers. I mean, it's over and over and over again. It's this story of we're trying to get like the Jews going, right? We're trying to get a people going, but you have to start with a family and there's already going to be war between the family, between the brothers, which brother is going to be in charge. Uh, and so like, that's like a fundamental human sort of like evil or problem of group organization. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that is what these stories are focusing our attention on. I think there's more stuff in the Iliad, like about just, the way in which the human body comes apart at the joints. <laughs> like that's a really, I mean, that's a lot of the Iliad is just descriptions of tendons being unstrung and, you know, different places a spear can go to tear different muscles. And that's looking inside the human body in a way that you don't, and you're not allowed to do in most other contexts 
or just if you saw a corpse on the street, right? If you saw a corpse on the street, you wouldn't, you would look away from it, right? I mean, you just wouldn't feel like you were even allowed to look at it. But if you see, you see corpses in movies all the time and we look at them, right? And so, so there's a kind of, yeah, I do think fiction is meant to ship, but there it's just truths. It's not for the guidance of our life. It's just because we care about the truth, I think. So let me give a different, but perhaps complementary perspective. Um, and then after that, maybe we should let Will have the final Yes, word that sounds fine. We're okay. running out of time. Um, in general, human world is full of all sorts of structures and things that are curious and different from the rest of the animal world we've ever seen. Not just stories, hospitals, traffic jams, hallways. There's just all these things in our world. Mm-hmm. And people often ask, why is that thing there? And... Um, the fact is that um, for almost all of these things, because they you know, are touching on so many parts of our world and lives, there are a great many social and formation structures that, that, that make those things be there and, and form how they are. Um, and so, but we're often asking, well, but why is it there? And so in principle, you know, you can imagine lots of different social pressures that could be structuring those things. And uh, the hard part is to disentangle, yes, but which are the more important ones? Um, But often sort of the conversation about these things tends to go, people tend to look for, you know, optimistic or idealistic functions. (laughs) We want to tell a story how about our world is good and how it works well. And so we might tell about how traffic jams give you time to think before you get home or, uh, you know, how the fact that it takes time to cook means that uh, you can pause to savor the smell. I mean, we, we, we make up all sorts of stories mm-hmm. about why things have various purposes. You know, why does the leopard have its spots? <laughs> um, and the, the problem is that we are prone to sort of find pro-social reasons, like that make us all look like good people working together to achieve things. Or even to make it look like it's a good thing that it exists, like, say, a traffic jam, where maybe it just shouldn't be there, and there is no good reason for it. Um, and uh, people want to show their creativity about making another explanation. And so I think what you really need to do, to be honest, is to go through for any one of these things, collect a list of all the plausible explanations you can come up with, and then make a list of sort of key observational facts about this thing that you might need to explain and then try to do a match where you say, well, which of these explanations can explain the most of those puzzling observation facts? And at the end of that, that's where you would get a best guess about the theory. But what you mostly see is someone just saying, here's theory A and it fits some facts and then they're done. (laughs) And then they go on, you know, on to the next topic. And so I, I think way too much sort of haphazard theorizing where people are just happy to have named any theory that could explain something without doing the systematic comparison of different possible theories and what are the subtler facts they could explain. Um, and so I, I just think if you want to explain something like stories, that's the process you have to go through. I've, I've, I've gone only partway through that sort of process, but there's a lot of subtle things that you would bring in and there's a lot of theories you could invoke. And so, and, and what Agnes mentioned is certainly one of the plausible theories, but there's a lot of there's a lot more. Got it. Oh well, as for as for final word, I I don't <laughs> think I have anything too profound to say. Maybe a, a little humble reflection on the relationship between art and truth. Kind of is kind of potentially linked to what you were saying about 
if it wasn't truth, this is um, something you were saying earlier, Robin. If it wasn't, if it wasn't truth, it would be like a, a jumbling cloud um, with with not much identifiable within it. I think if I recall my favorite pieces of art or my favorite stories or movies or to some extent music, I think it's because they've been realistic that they've become my favorite because they have um, this ta- this link to reality, this recognizable flavor that this is true, that they've become um, my favorite. And maybe um, to link back to the the... Um, ancient stories that have lingered throughout history, such as the Bible, it's because these best encapsulate um, truisms about human life that they've survived, perhaps. Uh, We can only guess. And that's our podcast. Okay. Okay.